I assume most of you have probably heard the phrase, let go and let God. And so the question I want to start out with this morning is to ask you this, should you let go and let God? This phrase is, is not found in the Bible, although uh, there's a fair number of Christians who might use it. If someone was going to find a biblical support for it, they'd probably turn to the passage that we're going to look at this morning, this first part here from John 15, this idea that we have to abide in God. And so since Jesus talks about abiding in himself in John 15, 1-11, what does that actually mean? Does that mean uh, something that we should... Uh, just sort of do passively, what does it look like, why should we do it, what's the goal of it. Uh, let's learn more as we look at John 15 to 16. Here's the point that I think we're supposed to get from these two chapters. Abide in Jesus as you remember his words, that you may joyfully believe. So abide in Jesus, that's the first truth we see here from verses 1 through 17. What's the first thing that we see under this idea of abiding in Jesus. Well, Jesus and the Father are part of this picture of kind of like a grapevine. And in this picture, Jesus is the vine. His followers and professing followers are the branches of the vine. And God the Father is the one who comes and tends the vine. And so in this, in this picture, uh, Unfruitful branches are cut off. In verse 2, every branch that does not bear fruit he takes away. And verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch. And they're gathered and cast into the fire and burned. And so what's the picture here? The picture here is if you have a grapevine, or for that matter, any other kind of fruit-bearing plant, and it is not producing fruit, sooner or later, what are you going to do? You're going to cut off the branches that aren't producing fruit because you don't want them to keep uh, the energy of the plant going into the branches that are just sending out leaves and that's it. You want them to produce fruit. You want a grapevine to produce grapes. You want a tomato plant to produce tomatoes. You want a blackberry shrub to produce blackberries. And if all it's doing is sending out these leafy canes or branches or stems, that doesn't help anything. And so those are going to get cut off. And that, in this picture is an image for those who perhaps have heard God's word, perhaps appear to be followers of Jesus, but what is the test that shows that they are not genuinely abiding in Christ, not genuinely connected to Christ? It is the fact of whether or not they produce the fruit of being a follower of Christ. So unfruitful branches are cut off. I want to make clear this is not teaching loss of salvation but rather that it is possible for someone to appear to be closely connected with Christ. You could, you could come to church. You could, for that matter, even be a church member and not really and truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Discipleship is about more than whether you have convinced other people that you know the Bible, whether you have convinced other people that you're more or less a good person, uh, which unfortunately is sometimes the test that, that people use to evaluate whether they think someone's a Christian. Well, that person's a nice person. Well, God's not calling us to be nice people. God's not calling us even primarily in a passage like this to church membership. He's calling us to a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, is participating in a church and reading God's word and spending time in prayer, are all those other things connected with following Christ? Yes, 
But here the focus is on, do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? Because here's what happens. I cut some stalks of things down in my yard this week, and there were some other ones that were broken off. As soon as a stalk or a branch is cut off from the main plant, it's dead. Because there is no life being passed to it. No nutrients, no water, nothing going to it anymore. And so if someone does not produce the fruit of being a follower of Christ, it says that they will be cut off. There is no life existing in it. Bearing fruit, then, is a sign of life. It is a sign of being connected with Christ. It is a sign of abiding in Christ. Verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Um, I'm not great at pruning my berry bushes, so I'll just use the illustration of a tomato. If you have a tomato plant, the tomato plant is going to want to send off a lot of side shoots. You prune those off so that the ones that actually produce the tomatoes are the ones that are getting the most nutrients. The same is true with fruit shrubs. You prune them to maximize the amount of fruit output. This perhaps has parallels to other images elsewhere in Scripture about the idea of faith being purified. So God uses various circumstances, encounters with His Word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all of these things God uses to maximize the fruit of following after Him in the life of His people. So then bearing fruit is identified here as keeping the commandments. Verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. He says, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So he's drawing a link between abiding in him, abiding in his love, the relationship between Jesus and God the Father, and keeping the commandments. So keeping the commandments that Jesus gives is the same as being fruitful, is a sign of abiding in Christ, is a sign of being connected with also God the Father. What specific commandment does he give here? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. But he starts out in verse 3 by saying, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That echoes back to John 13, verse 10, where he says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. So through Jesus' word, the disciples who believed in that word were made spiritually clean. So he says that is a given in this case. Such a person who has become cleansed by coming to know Christ as Savior and Lord, now is to produce fruit. They are to abide in Jesus' love, even as Jesus abides in the Father's love, verse 9, and that person will also possess joy in abundance. It's important to note that abiding in Christ is not a passive state. Sometimes, and this is where I think I would take exception with the phrase, let go and let God. Sometimes people have used that idea in a way that says, I'm just going to go sit on the recliner, I'm just going to go wait, and God's going to kind of zap me and do the things that He wants to happen in my life. But abiding in Christ, like a vine producing fruit, is not a passive state. What would sitting on the couch look like? It would look like the vine grows two leaves and quits and waits. But that's not what a fruitful branch does on a vine. The fruitful branch puts out more and more leaves, and it starts to form the flowers, which then forms the fruit, it is continuing to grow. It is continuing to change. It is continuing to develop based on the life-giving strength that comes to it from being connected with the vine. 
And so abiding in Christ is not a passive state where we just sort of wait for God to do stuff to us. It is sustained only by God's power, but it is an active participation in what God has called us to do. Philippians 2 verse 12 is probably one of the verses that best illustrates this. It says this, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. You obey God, and the only reason you're able to obey God is because God's at work in you, and those things work side by side together. You can't take credit for it because God's the one who's supplying the life and the strength, but you can't be lazy because God expects you to be actively obeying his commands. And so Jesus speaks all these things to his disciples, verse 11, so that they might possess his joy in abundance and that their joy might also be made full. And this is going to be despite a great deal of difficulty, like we're going to see in verses 18 and following, and then also in the middle of chapter 16. So, Jesus and the Father cut off unfruitful branches, those who claim to follow God but don't really know him, those who have no fruit of obedience to love one another as Jesus called them to do. And they prune the branches that are genuinely following after him, those who really are his people, those who love one another and show by their fruit to be his disciples. Jesus then explains further in verses 12 through 17. What specific command is it that he wants them to do? Well, as I just mentioned, it is to love one another. This is patterned after his own example of love for them. So it's not just a generic keeping Jesus' commands, but keeping a specific command that he is looking for as a sign of fruitfulness in us. He says in verse 12, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We talked about this last week, and I think even the week before, What sort of love are we talking about? It's not just a generic love like, I feel happy toward a person, or I feel this sort of rush of emotion toward them, or they do nice stuff for for me, and so I like that. It's more substantial than that. Love, defined in this context, is, as we saw in chapter 13, Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. So if we are to love like Jesus loved, we love to the end, if we love like Jesus loved, we love in service to one another. That's what he called them to in thirteen fifteen. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Serve as I have served you. And furthermore, true love looks like sacrifice, even to the point of death. Look at verses 13 to 16 of chapter 15. John fifteen thirteen says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest example of human love is that you would die to save someone that you care about, someone that you love. That's the greatest example of human love. Jesus then moves on from that in verse 14 and says, you are my friends if you do what I command. What's the implication there? There is no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. I'm going to lay down my life for you following my example. And then he says in verse 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, because the subject of slavery is kind of a a hot topic in 
in society today. I just want to clarify what this passage is saying. The sort of slavery is not um, probably the idea of slavery that we're familiar with. It was extended servitude of one person to another, sometimes because they were captured in war, sometimes because they had a debt that they couldn't pay. It is different from slavery that we might be familiar with in the history of our country or other countries in that it was not limited to specific people groups other than if one nation conquered another they would take slaves from that nation so it had nothing to do with your appearance it didn't really have to do with all of those sorts of factors it had primarily to do with in their society largely to do with people who had debts that they couldn't pay they would be enslaved to another person until they could pay off that debt a slave is expected to work for the master without getting an explanation of why the master is doing a particular thing. And that's the point that Jesus is emphasizing here. He's saying, unlike a slave or even an employee today with a boss, you don't, may not know all the reasons why they're saying, do this thing. But Jesus is saying, I'm not treating you that way. I'm treating you as friends. I'm telling you why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm telling you what the purpose of it is. I have told you all that the Father has told me. When he says that, when he says, I didn't, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, I think sometimes it's easy for us to get bogged down in the idea of choosing because we don't like the idea of choosing. We want to say, well, is it fair? And why does God choose people? And, and, and can people say no if God chooses them? And all those sorts of theological arguments. The emphasis here is not really to get into all of that. The point here is this. Why did Jesus choose them? That's the thing that's emphasized in this passage. Verse 16, so that you would go and bear fruit. The point of choosing is to lead to obedience, is to lead to loving one another, is to lead to following after God. Ephesians 2.10 is a parallel passage to this, that God has appointed you that you would walk in good works. Why does God choose people for salvation? God chooses people for salvation, not so they can say, here's my ticket to heaven, and I'm doing my own thing for the rest of my life, but so that they can say, I belong to God, and I'm going to live the way that pleases Him, and I'm going to do good works in obedience to Him. Jesus then repeats His command for emphasis in verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. And so to sum up these first 17 verses, abiding is not passive, but active. True disciples who abide in Jesus are upheld by God's power to obey God's commands. The primary command emphasized here is to love one another. And this, quite honestly, is a continuation of something God has said to his people from the very beginning. Way back when God gave the law to Moses, the summary of it was, as Jesus explains, love God with all your being Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is, in some ways, giving a new command because their understanding of it is more clear, but in other ways, is repeating for them something God has always wanted his people to do, to show love for one another. In order for them to obey that command, to love one another, they would need to remember some important truths. And so the second point we see here from verses 18 and following down through the first few verses of chapter 16 is that you need to remember Jesus' words as you abide in him. So abide in Jesus, but remember Jesus' words as you abide in Jesus. What's the first thing you need to remember? Remember that a slave is not greater than his master, so expect unbelievers to hate you like they hated Jesus. And you say, well, that's not a particularly encouraging statement to lead out with. 
Where's all this stuff about living your best life now and, and you'll have a wonderful life if you follow after God and God has a wonderful plan for your life and all those things that sometimes masquerade as genuine Christianity? Well, it's not there in the outline because it's not there in the passage. What does the passage say? The passage says, the world hates God. Jesus is God. The world hates Jesus. You're associating yourself with Jesus. So what's the natural conclusion? If they persecuted the one who is God, and you are followers of God, don't expect that the followers are going to have an easier time of it than the one who actually is God. The slave is not greater than his master. So he says, verse 18, the world hated Jesus first. Verse 19, the world loves its own, and so if you're of the world, the world will love you, but the world hates Jesus and his followers. Just to quickly clarify, when it says world, don't think about like the globe, like geography and countries and all that sort of thing. The way that the word world is used here is the way that it's used in a lot of places in the New Testament, which is the world system of unbelievers who are opposed to God and ruled over by Satan. So, for example, in Ephesians 6, it talks about the ruler of this world oversees principalities and powers and forces of darkness in high places that stands behind the secular systems of government in our world and orchestrates them in such a way that they, more often than not, are opposed to God's people and persecute the church and all those sorts of things. That's what he means here by world. The world system opposed to God. And so the world system opposed to God, whether it be one of those leaders who's actively orchestrating a plan to try to stamp out God's church, or whether it be the average person you meet on the street who doesn't know God and thinks that Christianity is stupid, I mean, anywhere in between those two things, their natural disposition is to hate God. Why? Because God says things like, you're a sinner. We don't want to hear we're a sinner. God says things like, you need to turn away from your sin. We're like, we don't want to turn away from our sin. We like doing it until it gets so miserable. Or God is the one in charge of your life. We're like, I don't want God to be in charge of my life. I want to be in charge of my life. And so people apart from God naturally hate God. And so if you are following after God, they're going to hate you too. And that's just the plain fact of what this passage is saying. Those who persecute God's followers ironically do so because they don't know God and they think that they're serving God. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. All these things they do for my name's sake, not they do it in service to me, but they do it because you're associated with my name. Why? Because they don't know the one who sent me. So the opposition of the secular world, those who don't know God, against Jesus and against God's people, it is a sign that they don't know God. Think about, for example, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I've been studying it again, teaching through it to the 8th graders that I teach. Um, there were a group of people from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who basically started on Paul's first missionary journey and followed him around as much as possible to try to get him killed. So that's a perfect example of the hatred and the opposition that unbelievers have to the gospel. They apparently succeeded at one instance. I believe God raised Paul from the dead after one instance where they stoned him. Um, 
But they go from city to city. They're the reason that Paul often is thrown in jail. They're the reason that Paul is ultimately thrown in jail and ends up in Rome, which ironically also accomplishes God's purpose and plan for Paul to testify of the gospel at the heart of the Roman Empire. But Paul is a perfect example of someone who is hated by the world because he's speaking God's truth. There's a number of reasons that people around us can hate us. They can hate us for stupid reasons that have nothing to do with Christianity. They can hate us because they don't like how we look. They can hate us because they take offense at something that we do around our house. They can hate us because of what sports team we cheer for. I mean, people have been killed over things like this. They can hate us because we're actively doing wrong. First Peter warns against this. It's possible for you to suffer because you're a liar or a thief. And if you do, then you deserve to suffer for being a liar or a thief because those are sins and God's not pleased by them. If you're going to suffer, Peter says, suffer because you are telling people about Jesus and they don't like that. Not because you're being obnoxious, not because you're actually sinning, not because of some silly thing that you get into an argument with people about. If you're going to suffer, suffer for the sake of following after Jesus. And the normal trajectory of the human life, of the Christian life, I should say, is that you will suffer. Why did um, these people, why are they opposed to Jesus? Because Jesus' words convicted them of sin. When Jesus came before these people and came before the Pharisees and says, hey, you guys are hypocrites. You try to tithe, but in reality, you hate the people around you. They didn't like that because they thought they were pretty good people. When he goes to the marketplace and he says, you are sinners because you're living in all kinds of wickedness. They didn't like that. Jesus' words convicted them of sin, so they had no excuse. But their hatred shows not just hatred toward Jesus, but toward God the Father, verse 23. He says, furthermore, if I had not done among the works, they would not have sinned. That doesn't mean that they would not have been sinning. It means that they would not have been aware of their sin. And so Jesus' coming exposes sin in a way that was somewhat unique, that their awareness of sin greatly increases as Jesus comes and speaks truth to them. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit coming, the Helper, verse 26, who will continue Jesus' work and cause Jesus' disciples to testify about Jesus. He had talked about the Helper at the end of verse 14, so we've already seen this idea, but here's the basic idea. Jesus will go, the Holy Spirit will come. Jesus' work is done, the Spirit will continue his work. Jesus' disciples might think that their part is done, but their ministry will continue under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so to sum up this middle section here, uh, actually, let me, let me come to first, the first four verses of chapter 16. I don't want to skip those. He says basically this idea, remember that hardship will come so that you don't stumble and turn away. So remember you're not greater than Jesus, so when the world hates you, don't be surprised. Remember, hardship will come so that you don't stumble and, and, and lose your faith. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, These things I have spoken so you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. These things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes... You may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say at the beginning because I was with you. 
Jesus warned them about persecution so they would not stumble. Now, I want to be clear. Verse 32 of chapter 16 says, they will be scattered, but they will not stumble. What's the difference? The duration. The idea of stumbling here is I think Jesus is getting at the idea that they turn away from God never come back. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be discouraged. Peter is going to deny Christ. There's going to need to be restoration. Their faith is not going to be perfect, and it is going to falter at certain points, but it is not going to be lost. That's the thing I think Jesus is emphasizing here. One of the things that enables our faith not to be lost in times of persecution is recognizing that that persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. We tend not to think of persecution as a normal part of the Christian life because we've had it really easy in our country for a lot of years, and even people who hated God didn't do so openly for the last couple hundred years in our country, for the most part, generally speaking. But, Jesus says, you need to remember these things so that you're not going to stumble. If you're convinced that Christianity and following Jesus is going to give you the easiest life possible, your faith is going to be broken when it's not an easy life. Because that's what you've pinned your hopes on. But if you recognize that following Jesus, as we're going to see in the next little section, follows the pattern of Jesus' own life, cross before crown, suffering before joy, seeming defeat before victory, if you recognize that that is the pattern that is normal in the Christian life, then when exactly that happens, your faith will not be broken because you'll recognize it's happening the way that Jesus said it was going to. The irony of these people who are persecuting is that they're going to be convinced that they're serving God. There are a lot of people today who oppose churches and the preaching of the Bible and all those sorts of things because they think they're doing what's right. Some of them are convinced that this is the case with regard to um, issues of like women's rights. They're like, well, you know, the idea that God is masculine in some way or some of those sorts of things. We've got to get rid of that idea, and they think that they're doing right by, by doing that. The idea that we're going to redefine the family so that everybody can be all happy and love one another. They think that they're serving what is right in doing that. They're wrong in their understanding, but they're convinced that they're right, and so they blindly persecute those who say what the Bible says. And the reason for it, verse 3, is because they don't know God. And our response is going to tend to want to be, in our flesh, in our natural tendencies, we're going to want to say, I want to lash out at that person, I want to show them how they're wrong, I want to show them that I'm going to, I'm going to beat them, we're going to win, we're going to be the ones that prevail, we're going to like be the ones in charge so that they can't get their way. The reality is the only thing that's going to change someone's heart and mind like that is not us yelling at them. I'm not saying never speak truth. I'm saying people who are blinded by sin are not convinced by persuasive arguments because their minds are broken and corrupted by the influence of sin. The natural man doesn't understand the things of God. So when you say, God wants you to believe in Jesus, that makes no sense to them at some level because they're opposed to God, they hate God, they don't want God. That's what Romans 3 says, like we talked about in Sunday school. So, if they're opposed to God, what has to happen for them to now want to serve and follow after God despite the hardships associated with it? 
God's Spirit has to give them new spiritual life. How does that new spiritual life come? Not through persuasive arguments. Paul makes that point very clear in Corinthians. Not through just being like a really uh, charismatic person, like people really like you, and so now they want to do what you say. Paul was, as best we can tell, not a particularly impressive person. He wasn't tall. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't impressive in all the ways that people judge impressiveness. But what did he do? He took the gospel message and God saved people. So what do you and I have to do? Not be impressive, not be clever, not be whatever we think we ought to be. Know what God has said, speak it honestly and openly, and the Spirit will work in people's lives. That's what God calls us to do. So to sum up this middle section, we must remember that as Jesus suffered, we will suffer, so don't be surprised by hardship. That is not, however, the end of the story. Suffering and sorrow is necessary, but is followed by joy and hope. And that's the third truth here. Believe with joy as you remember Jesus' words while you abide in him. Chapter 16. I'm not going to take a great deal of time on this, but there's important truths here we need to look at. What do we need to believe? We need to believe and understand that Jesus' leaving was sorrowful, but necessary for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see this in verses 5 through 15. Jesus was returning to the Father, verse 5. I am now returning to the Father, the one who sent me. He says, none of you asked me, where are you going? And this appears to be a contradiction with where it says in um, Peter's words in chapter 13, and then uh, Philip's words in... Um, in chapter 14, I'm sorry, uh, Thomas' words in chapter 14, it appears to be a contradiction at first. I think he's saying, in this moment, none of you are questioning this. In this moment, none of you are saying, where are you going? You've accepted at this point that I am going, and so now you've moved to the next step, which is, now we're sad that you're going. His departure is going to provoke sorrow among the disciples. Verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. But his departure is necessary for the Spirit to come. Verse 7, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus is encouraging them to look at this as not the end of their relationship with him, but a transition in their relationship with him of he's with them, he's going to go away. While he's away, the Spirit will be with them, and then he's going to return. What does the Spirit's ministry look like while Jesus is gone to be with the Father for this time. Verse 8, when he comes, he'll convict the world about three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they don't believe. So he's going to make it clear that their unbelief is sinful. About righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. So there could be an element of the Spirit showing that Jesus was righteous because he fulfilled all these things the Father required of him, or convicting the world about their lack of righteousness and the fact that they need Jesus. I think people have taken it either of these two ways. And then the last one, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The coming of the Spirit is, as much as it is a down payment of the promises of God for the believer, Ephesians 1, it is also a confident assertion that Satan has been judged and he will be defeated. And so Satan's doom is now certain as the Spirit comes. What else is the ministry of the Spirit? Toward the world? 
convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Toward the disciples, verses 12 through 15, to teach them in Jesus' absence. Verse 12, I have many things more to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And so the Spirit was going to continue teaching the disciples God's words, which we now have recorded for us in the letters and so forth of the New Testament. All of that comes after Jesus has gone to heaven through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is going to furthermore speak Jesus' words, which actually come from God the Father. And so because the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one, the Holy Spirit is going to speak God's truth to the disciples, verse 15. He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. And so the first thing that they needed to recognize in order to have joy, despite Jesus leaving being sorrowful, is that he had to go for the Spirit to come. The second thing they had to keep in mind is that Jesus leaving was in fact sorrowful, but would be followed by joy when they saw him again. So he has to go so the Spirit will come. He is going to go, but he's going to return. We see this in verses 16 through 22. A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. Jesus would remain for a short time. Probably this is a reference to his appearance uh, after his resurrection, but somewhat might take it to his appearance at the end, end times. Verse 17, the disciples don't understand. What is this he's saying? What is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus then responds and explains further in verses 19 through 22. He sums up. He says, you're going to sorrow at my death. Verse 20, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. You are going to go through sorrow. You're right on that. You will sorrow. But then he gives this illustration. He says, like a woman who has sorrow and pain in the process of childbirth, but then when that child is born, she gets to hold the baby in her arms. You are going to go through a time of suffering and difficulty and sorrow. But when there is a reuniting between you and me, just like there is a uniting between the mother and her baby, you are both not going to remember the sorrow compared to the joy, and it will be a time of great rejoicing in contrast to that brief time of sorrow. Now, I've obviously not gone through childbirth. And so those of you ladies who hear this illustration are going to say, it is a great pain and sorrow. But think about the duration of it. It is a comparatively brief pain and sorrow compared to the whole life that you get to have that child to grow up and to show love and have that relationship. And that's the, the point of this illustration that he's giving here. Verse 22, You have grief now, but that grief will pass when you see Jesus again. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Your, joy will your grief will pass when you're reunited with Jesus, and your joy will last without end. Jesus leaving, thirdly, will deepen the disciples' relationship with God the Father. So Jesus has to go so the Spirit can come. Jesus is going to go, but he's going to come back, and so their joy will be uh, made full when Jesus comes back. And now, verse 23, Jesus leaving is not only going to create a relationship between them and the Holy Spirit, but it's going to deepen their relationship with God the Father. 
He says in verse 23, In that day you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And so I emphasize the second half of the verse there. The disciples would ask the Father, and he would answer their prayers, and he would make their joy full. Why? Because he will love them as true believers. Verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. And so Jesus leaving means that instead of them being exclusively dependent on their relationship with Jesus, they're going to recognize that their relationship with Jesus is a relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. And so their relationship with the triune God will be strengthened and their knowledge will increase that we know God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, not just Jesus face to face. Jesus says, I'm going to speak plainly soon. Right now I've been talking in figurative language, the illustration of uh, a woman in labor and all these other sorts of things. But now I will speak plain, uh, plainly of the Father. Verse 25, he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you, I will ask the Father for you, because the Father loves you. I came forth from the Father, verse 28, and have come into the world. Now I leave the world and I'm going to the Father. The disciples think that the moment that Jesus is referring to in that day is this moment that he's talking to them right now. They say, all right, now we understand. Now our faith is, is made real. Now we get it. We've got it. Everything's good. What does Jesus say? Jesus warns them. Uh, first, their statement of belief. Lo, now you are speaking plainly and not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. They make a confident assertion of, yes, we have faith. Yes, we believe in you as the one who's come from God. Yes, we're going to follow after you. Which kind of echoes Peter's response a few chapters earlier where he says, I'm ready to follow you, Lord. I'm ready even to die for you. But just like Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I know you think you're ready, but you're not. You're going to deny me before you serve me. He now says to the disciples, I know you think you're ready and you're never going to leave me. But he says in verse 32, Thirty-one. Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus says, I know you think you're ready, but the moment has not come yet for your faith to be strengthened, for you to have this deepened relationship with the Spirit and God the Father. It will come, but it's not right now. Before that comes, you're going to be scattered. Your faith is going to be tested. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to have sorrow. So be ready for that. How are you getting ready? Because, again, Jesus' words that he speaks to them, verse 33, I have spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. Not necessarily in this moment, not necessarily in the next moment while they're scattered and running for their lives and hiding and all those sorts of things, but maybe when they're in the upper room, they're looking back and they're thinking about Jesus' words. As they come to stand before the council, and they have opposition from people who are trying to stamp out the spread of the gospel, they're going to remember these words, and they will have peace because they know things are right between them and God, that even though they were scattered, even though they were denied, even though they faltered, their faith is secure in Jesus, and they will continue following after him. And note Jesus' final promise to them, in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. After his high priestly prayer, 
in John 17, the next chapter that we'll look at next week. Jesus is going to be betrayed, the disciples are going to be scattered, and Jesus will die. Their faith will seem to have failed, but this is only temporary. Jesus will shortly rise and be exalted to the Father. The Spirit will come to build the church, and this work will continue even to this present day until Jesus comes back to rule and to reign to fulfill all of the promises that God has laid out. So, as we look at this passage together, as we think about the promises that Jesus makes here, first to the disciples and then by application to those who would come after, what about you? Are you abiding in Jesus? This is not a passive wait for God to do stuff while I sit on the couch and watch Netflix. It's not. There are a lot of people who would like the Christian life to be that easy. You push a button, the microwave goes ding, and then you're ready. You just sort of hang out, and then everything happens to you, and now all of a sudden you're a spiritual person. It takes work. And our society is lazy and wants things immediately. And so we've got to fight against that tendency. Abiding in Christ takes work. It's an act of obedience to Jesus' command to love one another, empowered by his work in you. And loving one another takes many different forms. Sometimes it's coming alongside someone and saying, how can I pray with you? Sometimes it's saying, this person has a need, how can I meet it? Sometimes it's any number of things, and we can talk more about that later in the afternoon. So first of all, are you abiding in Christ? Second of all, are you remembering Jesus' words? Are you remembering Jesus' words? Christians often get frustrated because of the clash between the American dream, get rich, have an easy life, have lots of fun, do what I want, and the call that Jesus makes on us to discipleship. Face persecution as a true servant of God. If you don't experience the hatred of the world system opposed to God, I mean, quite honestly, you're probably not around enough people who don't know God. Because if you spend time with people who don't know God, you're going to see that they hate God, and some of that's going to spill over into your life. So if you say, I've never experienced that, I would encourage you to go meet more people who don't know Jesus and try to introduce them to Jesus. It's also possible that you haven't experienced this because you are fairly young, like you're actually a child. So Maggie was working on the Sunday school lesson, and it said, describe a situation in which you face persecution. Well, at nine, she hasn't faced a lot of intense persecution. So maybe the question, if you're young and you haven't, your opportunities for interacting with lost people are limited and all those sorts of things, maybe the question you need to be thinking about is not so much, how am I experiencing this hatred of the world toward me now, but how will I get ready for when I do face it in a few short years? Maybe that's the question that you need to focus on. Finally, are you believing in Jesus that you might have joy? Believing in Jesus means enduring despite coming testing. Means knowing that sorrow leads to joy in the Christian's life. Means looking beyond this present difficult moment to the unfolding of God's glorious plan. We don't receive joy because everything is better in this life. We don't receive joy because everything is easy in this life. We have joy because we know that however intense and extended and difficult our suffering is in this world as we follow Jesus, what comes after is more glorious and far longer and far better. 
And that is a difficult truth to wrestle with. To believe, to have joy, to remember Jesus' words as we abide in Him because there are things that are pulling us away from abiding in Jesus. There are competing systems of belief that are drawing us away from remembering Jesus' words. And there's a temptation to stop believing and not reach the goal of that joy. But I would urge you to abide in Jesus as you remember His words that you may joyfully believe Jesus will fulfill what He has said He will return, and so we look forward to that day. So we come now to the time of the Lord's table.